The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Andrea, how are you? I'm doing well. You know, I've been starting to see more and more schools talk about what it's going to look like when they reopen in the fall. I'm talking to a lot of districts and my team is in coordination with a lot of districts that are thinking about back to school planning. What are you thinking? What is it going to look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've heard so many different things from not opening schools to opening schools part-time to having schedules where there are only half the amount of kids in the classroom kind of runs the gamut, doesn't it? Yeah, alternating days. And then not to mention a lot of the challenges that they're going to face and making sure kids can get up to where they need to be academically after this and in the ongoing interventions that they're going (laughs) to take around the pandemic. So they're having to deal with their physical space and the safety and taking the time to organize that as well as scheduling and infrastructure and devices for that. I'm sure it's going to look very different for different schools and different districts. And they're going to have to make some hard choices about how to serve all of the kids well and address the ongoing anxiety and trauma of the pandemic. So it's a tall order for schools and districts right now. And I've seen some real innovative conversation, like some interesting and creative problem solving. Right. Uh, So so it'll be, there may be some things that come out of this that, I mean, definitely it'll reshape our schools forever. I think that that's exactly right. This is for what seemed to me like a very long time. People kind of had this notion that we were going to go back to a normal, that we were going to go back to a time, January, 2020, right? Where we had the way we did things and that after a few months or maybe even a year, we would just get back to sort of business as usual. And I don't think that's going to happen. I think that education will be likely forever changed by the pandemic in some bigger ways and in a lot of smaller ways too. One of the things I think about a lot is that relationship between home and school and how there was a pretty big divide between home and school. And I mean, I guess I'll just be very curious to see what happens as we go along. And there can't be such a big divide because we won't know where kids are going to be educated, whether they'll be able to be in a school or whether part of the time they'll have to be at home. And then what's that going to look like? Yeah, that's an important question. And how they are going to help educators in distance learning and making that effective for students, how they are going to address the social emotional needs of students during this time, especially in a hybrid or distance learning model, and how they can access the power of social emotional learning to support students in achieving their goals in this very changed environment. A lot of them are going to have to deal with that transition managing their own emotions and their work in a different way. So there's a lot to unpack there. Well, there certainly is. And, you know, so much social emotional learning has really focused on the kids, right? And on the content being delivered to the kids. And I think we'll probably see a lot more support. Hopefully we'll see a lot more support for the educators and for their own social emotional well-being and development as well. So Andrea, you and I read a fascinating report from 
the Chiefs for Change just today about this very topic. Yeah, it was a great report. It covered a lot of the things that we're talking about and what they would recommend or hope to see and some of the things district leaders and educators should be thinking about in the return to school. I'd love to be able to talk to their CEO, Mike McGee, about it. Right. So for listeners who may not be familiar, Chiefs for Change is a nonprofit that brings the chief executive officers of our country's state departments of education and city school districts together to influence the future of learning in America. Yeah, they're a really amazing organization, and Mike has a long history with this work. He co-founded and was the former CEO of Rhode Island Mayoral Academies. He helped build statewide networks of regional, diverse-by-design public charter schools, and he's advocated for dramatic changes. Well, Andrea, we're really in luck today because our CEO here at Committee for Children, Colleen Oliver, and our Director of Policy and Advocacy, Jordan Posmentier, are talking to Mike today, and they've decided to record this special conversation just for our listeners. Excellent. I can't wait to listen. So here's the interview. I hope you all enjoy it. Hey, Colleen. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you too. Wanted to get together with you and have a conversation with Chiefs for Change CEO Mike McGee today. Yeah, I'm really excited about that, especially because over the last couple of months during this crisis, I have really, really appreciated uh, Mike's social media and his reports that are coming out to the first one, you know, schools and COVID-19. And then just this morning, another great one about how to think about opening schools in the fall. And so it's just, I'm really excited to be able to have Mike join us this morning on our podcast. Yeah, Mike, really happy you're able to join us today. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I know your family has a rich history in the education field with Mark, your brother at 50 Can. How did you get into this work? It's a long and winding history, Jordan. I was a college professor for 10 years. I taught and wrote about language and social change. Was always very politically active myself, very interested in K-12 education. It started as an academic interest for me. And then in 2007, I had an opportunity to work with a statewide coalition of mayors in Rhode Island to open brand new regional diverse by design public schools and led an organization called Rhode Island Mayoral Academies that opened a statewide network of these schools that are still around today and delivering really high quality education to a very diverse group of students across the state. In 2015, I was asked to lead the new nonprofit Chiefs for Change and work with urban school superintendents and state education chiefs from around the country, really aligned around a core set of beliefs about what needed to be true and what needed to change in order for every student in America to be put on a pathway to success. So that was too good to pass up. We've been growing Cheese for Change ever since. We have about three dozen members now from all over the country, serving about seven and a half million students. We've always supported them to implement their highest priorities. And of course, now their highest priority is getting kids back to school and serving them well in the midst of this pandemic. Thank you. You know, Mike, it's it's interesting, your membership, they're just from all parts of the country, which is really fascinating to me and very interesting. And knowing that when COVID happened, you know, people were responding in different ways because it was coming about in different ways. And so I'm curious if you could talk to us a little bit about 
on the West Coast, we were here in Washington, actually, we're the first to shut down all of our schools. And so I know Susan Enfield, the, the superintendent of Highline, was probably one of the first people in your, your network that had yes. to really think about it. And then how did that play out across the country? And how did they use their networking powers to help each other through all of the things that they had to do right out of the gate? Well, as you might imagine, no one was prepared for this. And the need to immediately stand up quality distance learning was a real challenge. And in fact, not the first order challenge. Right. The first order challenge in the middle of this pandemic was to get a line of sight on every one of your children, make sure they were housed, make sure they were fed. Many folks around the country probably didn't realize that there are literally millions of children who get all of their food from school. And there were not distribution networks set up initially to make sure that students were being adequately fed and that other really first order needs were being taken care of. So I'm very proud of the way that our members jumped on those challenges. And then quickly, they were able to shift to thinking about how are we going to equitably deliver learning to all of our kids when when they're at home. So there are a couple of things that I would point out. One, one of our members, Chad Geston, the superintendent in the Phoenix Union School District, which serves all high school students in Mm -hmm. Phoenix, rapidly created a program that they called Every Student Every Day that allowed every single high school student in Phoenix to receive a phone call from an adult every single day. From the beginning of the pandemic until today, that program has persisted. And most importantly for us, Chad actually codified that program. He He put it on paper in a way that allowed other district leaders to operationalize it for themselves. So we're seeing now in places like Baltimore, similar programs get stood up. That was critical because once you get a child on the phone, you can start to ask them questions about what they need in order to be safe, in order to learn. And there were scripts that went along with that program that allowed them to not only ask those questions, but log them into a central database and start thinking about how they were going to address needs. The second thing we found is that anyone who had a coherent, comprehensive approach to high-quality curriculum and who had been working to support their teachers to deliver good instruction on the best instructional materials really had a leg up in this crisis. Because as they shifted their thinking to how are we going to do this online, all of their teachers, all of their principals were speaking one language about a common set of materials that they had faith were of high quality. And they could also talk to their partners in the curriculum development and teacher professional development world about how they needed to lean in to support kids in this extraordinary time. So that's work that has to continue. I do think our members have been leading the field in standing up high quality materials for all students and good supports for teachers, but it's an unfinished job and now it's going to have to continue in a distance learning context. That's so true. And it's interesting, Jordan and I were just talking yesterday about the superintendent outside of Phoenix that was doing that where they called everybody. And so it's great to see that he codified that. So I think that's kind of the power, right, of your membership, that they can learn from each other and share those kinds of things so we aren't reinventing the wheel all the time. And to see then that Baltimore is also picking up on that, I just think that that is really great and really applaud your members and you for doing those kinds of things to share how to approach 
a crisis such as this? It really is the work that most excites us. Since the beginning of the pandemic, we've been convening all of our members on a weekly phone call, and they're all coming. So superintendents of the largest school districts in in the country, folks like Susan Enfield and Highline, they're all coming every single week. And it's a testament to how much they need each other right now. It is a lonely and difficult job running a U.S. school system. And they need to be able to bounce their own ideas off their best peers. They need to be able to share good ideas. And then they just need a framework for turning those ideas into action on the ground. So it's the kind of work we've always done, often in person. And now we've had to adapt to do it online like everybody else. It's good to hear that they're turning toward each other and learning of the network. I'm wondering if they are anything like we are. We're inundated. Our inboxes are filled with uh, the next thing related to how we can help kids during COVID-19. Do you have any sense of how they sort through that pile? What especially do they need from organizations outside of that network going forward? Yeah, it's one of the reasons, Jordan, that we produce this report is to try to bring some clarity to what their top priorities are right now. And the report that we produced and, and released today, which is called The Return, it really did emerge from the conversations we're having with our members. And then we asked the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins to provide a really deep and detailed examination of the research and evidence to align to what our members wanted to prioritize. That report breaks down four categories that are top of mind for them. And I should say, this is everything that coincides with prerogatives around health and safety. The first order of business is to really think through how are you going to bring kids back to school and teachers back to school safely. But in parallel to that, you're having to think about how are we going to make sure they continue to learn and how are we going to make sure that every one of our children is on a a true pathway to college and career in the midst of this pandemic and in the wake of this pandemic. So we identified four areas in partnership with our members that comprise this report. One is a real recommendation that we transition from the agrarian school calendar in the U.S. We've got to rethink what the day looks like. We have to rethink what the year looks like if we're going to make sure every student is on a true path to success right now. Secondly, we're going to have to rethink the roles of every adult in a school in deep partnership with teachers and other professionals that are part of the work that goes on in schools. Third, we're going to have to attend to the social and emotional well-being of students and build their social-emotional skills in the midst of this. We don't know, truthfully, what the effect of all this isolation and of people in in children's families being sick or dying is going to be when students return. We have to provide every and all supports that they're going to need around social-emotional well-being, but we're also going to have to make sure that they're building the muscles to self-regulate, to self-direct a significant amount of their own learning, especially at the middle and high school level. And thankfully, we know from the you know, work in the field on social-emotional learning quite a bit about how to do this well. It's really about emphasizing it. And lastly, as I mentioned, we're going to have to have a truly comprehensive and coherent framework for curriculum and instruction that allows schools to move seamlessly between the in-class and at-home environments. Because I will say, we don't have a single chief in our membership who is not planning for some amount of distance learning next year. And that's the right thing to do. Based on the trajectory of this pandemic, I am not an epidemiologist, but it seems highly likely that 
students are going to have to do some distance learning next year, not just in response to outbreaks, but in order to accommodate the kind of social distancing that needs to take place in school facilities. Those four areas were just spot on. I'm curious, I mean, obviously, we're really happy to see that one of the highest priorities is really thinking about the social and emotional learning of of students and their well-being. And I'm curious if you've seen even now when the pandemic started and between now and when school ends, are there places that that kind of stand out to you where people have uh, tried to do emphasize social emotional learning even now in this early phase without a lot of time to really prepare and think about it? Just curious if any of your chiefs uh, kind of stand out as examples of where that's happening. I think this has been a priority for all of them for a little while now, and they've been implementing programs accordingly. I think the work that Susan Enfield has done in Highline in partnership with an organization called Ruler, which is based at Yale University, and in partnership with the Pure Edge Foundation, which has a mindfulness curriculum for students as well as a sort of comprehensive program around teacher self-care. What we've seen and what Susan has told me is that has translated pretty seamlessly to the work they're doing now to support children and teachers and has been really valuable. Likewise, in Rhode Island at the state level, you know, I know Rhode Island's been working with Pure Edge to support all of their teachers across the state during this time. And I, I think that's an important thing to remember. If you're going to have a truly deep and comprehensive program around social emotional learning, teachers need to be supported as well. And I'd say one of the insights of the last couple of years is if in a teacher self-care program, if teachers are seeing and feeling the kind of impact of attending to their own social emotional health, they're going to be more likely to buy in and prioritize the social and emotional well-being and skills of their own students. So it really is about school culture at the end of the day and developing a culture of care that's deeply integrated into your academic program. That certainly makes sense. And I think it will also help the relationships if you can get those really strong relationships early on between teachers and students that that helps when you go to distance learning that there's still that connection. And I'm sure teachers are feeling that also. How do I stay connected with my students when they're not with me? And so, again, I think high priority, obviously, for us, too, is to think in those terms of how do we support both educators as well as children and now families, because families need to play a big part in also continuing that kind of social emotional learning. Absolutely. One of the things that's more clear than ever, I think, is that relationships are outcomes. And we know from the research that they have a profound effect on the life trajectories and academic trajectories of students. So it's so important to prioritize that right now. That's why we were excited to help to disseminate the Every Student Every Day program out of Phoenix. I'll give you another example, which is seems only tangentially related, but I think is actually deeply related. As you probably know, over this the period of the pandemic, FAFSA applications, the applications yeah. for financial assistance for college are down year over year. And that's not surprising, of course. It's been very difficult to connect with some of the students who really need that financial assistance in this time. In Ector County, Texas, which is in West Texas, the, the Odessa area, FAFSA completions are up 37%. Yeah. Wow. And that's because Scott Murray and his team 
prioritize filling out the FAFSA. It's because they prioritize reaching their most vulnerable students. And if we think about what that says to students and their families in the midst of this pandemic, it says to high school seniors in Hector County, we care about where you're headed and we're still going to help you get there. And so all of those small gestures right now are worth their weight in gold. And that's just one example of the kind of efforts happening across our membership right now. I would say the other one, which is so meaningful in so many ways, is simply the effort to get all children connected to the internet, which of course is happening all over the country. You know, the work that San Antonio did immediately under Superintendent Pedro Martinez to get every kid connected. They've been doing this for three years. They had a goal of getting 100% of their children connected to the internet at home. When the pandemic hit, they were not all the way there. They immediately made a decision to spend $7 million to get every kid connected. Not only was that important from a learning perspective, it spoke volumes to the San Antonio community about how the district felt about San Antonio families. So it is all connected. All of these efforts need to be mutually reinforcing and really proud of the work happening across our membership. I'm thinking about the comment you made earlier, Mike, about the kids who will have experienced loss and trauma upon return. I'm wondering if you have a sense of how that'll look at the systems level, how schools and systems will respond to those issues. Well, this is where, Jordan, I think there needs to be a lot of deep and creative thought brought to bear on the roles that adults are going to play in schools in the fall. There's so much uncertainty, but I would say it's abundantly clear that schools are going to need more robust supports around social, emotional health, and mental health that is trauma-informed as students return to school in the fall. A question that every one of my members is asking is, do we have enough capacity to deliver those supports to students right now? If we don't, how might we find it? You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about budgets in this context. This is a place where, for instance, the federal stimulus being contemplated right now could play a major and very, very important role. But it's also a place where I think there is an opportunity to think about how to shift capacity in a way that may, in fact, improve a school's ability to deliver academic supports to students while also building the capacity to deliver a stronger set of social and emotional supports. And I'll I'll give you one example. Many of our members over the past few years have been working with an organization called Public Impact on a program called Opportunity Culture, which rethinks the roles of teachers in schools so that teachers with the greatest amount of subject area and instructional expertise can either serve more students or support their fellow teachers in becoming stronger in subject areas and in instruction, or take on greater leadership roles in the the planning of academic programs in schools. There's a real opportunity to expand that work right now, particularly if you're going to be in a hybrid environment that involves some classroom and some online learning. Mm -hmm. If you were able to figure out a way to give your teachers who had the greatest amount of subject area expertise and instructional expertise more students to instruct by leveraging what you can do online, that would allow you to have some of your teachers much more focused on and much more empowered to support social emotional learning in schools, to build stronger relationships with individual students. And that could be quite powerful as a broader effort in school redesign. 
Yeah. I'm a big I, fan of Brian Hassel and public impact. And I love the idea yeah. of extending the reach of those teachers, especially now when we need it a lot. Yeah, I, I, I really like that idea too. And I love how you highlight that in your new report. As a former chief academic officer, I always think about when students are out of school or have limited uh, contact with teachers, you know, the learning loss that is happening and so I know that that's also top of mind for your membership and school leaders across the country. How are we going to address that learning loss when students return in the fall? And I was intrigued with your idea of having certain teachers be more of the subject specialist and use other teachers to work more closely with students. And I'm, I'm also wondering if your members are thinking that might be a way to accelerate some of that learning and fill that gap for that has happened now when so many students haven't had probably real consistent distance learning for the past couple of months. Do you think that will be a way to accelerate and catch kids back up? I think potentially it will. Again, I mean, I think we know a lot about the power of social emotional competencies and of relationships in the academic acceleration of students. And I think one of the most important aspects of the conversation we're having right now is that we not create a false dichotomy between social, emotional well-being and skills and academic acceleration. In a good school, they are mutually reinforcing. And so this is absolutely a both and. Um, And I think that's also important if you're going to be having a conversation with your teachers and other staff in schools about reorienting roles. Because this isn't about validating some work over other work. Ideally, this is about teaching in teams to support all students. And I'll give you one other example of where I think the work ahead could be very mutually reinforcing. One of the things we recommend in, in our report, The Return, is that particularly at the middle and high school level, we redesign student groups into smaller mentor groups of less than a dozen students. There are many schools today that organize their students that way and that have robust mentoring programs where you have a single teacher who is assigned to 10 or 12 students in a school and has real responsibilities around the well-being of those students and their academic achievement. So we think this is a good idea in any event, and it certainly would allow you to find a lot of synergy between social-emotional learning and academic learning. But from a health and safety perspective, it also makes a heck of a lot of sense. Because the truth is, schools are going to have to have deep and detailed plans for what happens if a student gets coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And it is easier to manage individual cases of illness or even small outbreaks if you've organized your students in smaller groups. It's also easier to figure out how to keep them practicing social distancing of some kind. Sure. So that's an example of a place where you can imagine a school redesign effort where your goals around academic achievement, your goals around social emotional skills, and your goals around safety could all be mutually reinforcing. Hmm. That's a great idea. Some of these ideas we've worked on at the bricks and mortar level, and now maybe that we're all remote, we have a chance to really make them more robust. I hope we can all cooperate on that. You know, I don't want to minimize the challenge. (laughs) One of the things all of our members are doing now is very detailed feasibility studies of their own facilities. As we think about what we're going to have to do on the safety side, just figuring out how buildings are going to work, how buses are going to work, how meals are going to get distributed. I mean, these are operational challenges that are Herculean 
But again, very proud to say that our members are aggressively tackling them. And I think some really smart ideas are going to emerge soon. Looking at your membership, so you have state chiefs as well as superintendents of districts. And I'm, I'm curious if, you know, like thinking of the return report, how your state superintendents and state chiefs are thinking about this, you know, from a state level, as well as your chiefs that are thinking at a district level. So are they the same four kind of high priorities? And how are they thinking about ways to roll that out from like a statewide perspective? District leadership and state leadership both have very, very important roles to play if we are going to get kids back into school and accelerate their learning over the next year or two years or however long it takes. At the state level, there's a few things I think that will be vital going forward. One, everything we've been talking about has implications for state law and regulation. And many of the things that we recommend in the return potentially put districts out of compliance with state law and regulation. So it's imperative right now that state chiefs and their teams are combing through their own regulations to say, okay, if we think these are smart ideas, what do we need to change right now in order to empower districts to enact them? Many, many states have rules around seat time, around the calendar year, around teacher certification that could rapidly be at odds with what schools need to do in in order to serve all students well. They need to be working in close cooperation, I think, especially with their most innovative districts right now, to address those issues. Some of them are tied to funding. In many, many states, funding is tied to seat time. So these are really big policy challenges that need to be addressed, and they need to be addressed rapidly. The second is, if we think about the set of recommendations in our report, states have a role to play in providing not just guidance, but some level of technical assistance to districts to help them to implement some of these good ideas. And they also have a role to play in distributing funding, including federal funding. So they already are distributing some amount of federal stimulus. It looks likely that they'll be distributing more. One of the things that we would recommend is that states distribute that stimulus for the strategies and practices that we know from the research actually work. They have a great opportunity to actually incentivize evidence-based strategies right now, rather than just putting the money out there without guidance. Yeah. Do you um, have examples of states that are spending the stimulus in that fashion? I don't have examples yet that are specific to that, Jordan, but I will say that we have states, Tennessee would be a good example, mm-hmm. that are providing very, very strong guidance about what the evidence says districts should be doing right now. And we also historically have many examples of states that have used their Title I and Title II money, for instance, to incentivize really smart practices around curriculum and instruction. So I don't think it's a matter of having to reinvent the wheel here. It's a matter of providing very good guidance and speaking very clearly from the state level what stimulus dollars should be for to help districts to build really good plans in the best interest of students. Yeah, definitely. Prioritization is key. We know that SEL, social-emotional learning, is named outright in some of the funds. How might those of us who are advocates or providers of SEL programs best serve those in the field? So as you said, Jordan, it's a tough moment because every chief in America is being inundated with 100 emails a day offering support. And truthfully, it's an enormous challenge for them to simply sift through the offers at this point. 
I think there's a big role for organizations that have a lot of credibility in the field to speak to what organizations, what programs, what ideas have strong basis in the research and evidence. Yeah. Because I know my members would really benefit from clarity on that front. And again, this is a place where we have historic examples. When the federal ESSA law was passed governing K-12 education, Nevada, for instance, created a system at the state level for vetting third-party providers based on the evidence. That type of clarity, I think, is very helpful to districts to say, okay, you are implementing an SEL program. Here are the third-party providers that have evidence-based programs and supports. If, you know, what Nevada said was, if you want to work with these third-party providers, you're going to be able to go through a streamlined approval process. If you want to invent something out of thin air, that's allowable, but here's this 96-page document you need to fill out. Yeah. So there are smart ways that states can incentivize kind of um, good strategies on, on the part of districts. I would imagine that that would also translate to another point that you, you raise in the return about having strong curriculum for academics also to be able to, maybe this is the time finally where we can say as a, as a nation, let's get the best curriculum to our teachers so that they're in a position to be able to teach and have children learn with the right materials. And I'll be really curious to see how your state chiefs as well as your district leaders are thinking about, can they push a little bit more now given the circumstances to maybe get that to actually happen? I hope so. And I hope the report is helpful in empowering district and state leaders to move forward with true evidence-based plans. Sonia Santelise said, I thought a terrific op-ed in the Baltimore Sun this week. She said, you know, look, don't give me $15,000 a kid to hold all my kids back, which is one idea that we've heard floated around over the last month or two. If you're going to give me $15,000 per kid, I'm going to double down on the work we're doing in curriculum and instruction. I think that's exactly the kind of leadership we need right now. The truth is, Many of the things that were true before the pandemic are even more true now. It is really about focus, and I would say about making sure that everything you want to do on academic, social, and emotional learning is deeply aligned to your goals around school safety Mm -hmm. and translates to a world in which you're going to have to move seamlessly between home and class. The issue of families playing a more important role now more than ever in both academic learning and social emotional learning. I'm wondering if you've also seen any bright spots amongst your members or others that, or people are engaging with families in new and different ways, and how might we learn from that? going forward for organizations like ourselves that are obviously providers around social emotional learning. We've always had the desire to want to have stronger family relationships and provide resources for that. So I'm just curious if you're seeing some places in Phoenix where they have that, but other places too, where people are having more success engaging directly with families. I think it's been a real point of emphasis during the pandemic on the part of many of our members. In San Antonio, one of the things I thought has been wonderful and is a real example of leadership is just the attention that they are giving to closing out this school year, to not sort of just let the 2019-20 school year sort of float into the ether, but to say it actually matters to families. 
that we have graduations that feel real mm -hmm. and feel joyful. It actually matters that we acknowledge that every student in San Antonio Independent School District finished the year. Families care about these things. They want feedback on how their students finished the year and about what the summer is going to look like. So there's been a real family engagement effort there. Again, the grand effort to connect every home to the internet speaks volumes to families about how much their school systems care about them. One other area that I think has been very important and is maybe the most complex aspect of serving all students well in this time is what's happening in efforts to serve students with special needs. And in relation to your question, one thing we've seen, which is anecdotal at this point, but which really resonated with me, is many members telling us that when it comes to things like physical therapy and occupational therapy, which are having to be delivered in kind of telehealth formats right now, one thing that they have observed is that parents are much more likely to respond to and to emulate instructional videos on physical therapy and occupational therapy that feature the teachers and therapists that they already know. Mm -hmm. So you could send them to an excellent, highly produced physical therapy video on YouTube, and they actually wouldn't use it. But if a therapist who they are already familiar with shoots the same video on their iPhone, they use that video to practice. And they need that video to practice. They are the ones delivering physical therapy to their own children right now. So it really resonated for me in terms of just how powerful that relationship between a teacher and a parent can be, or a therapist and a parent, to the services that systems are providing to kids. Well, our podcast is called Grow Kinder. So this is the point of the interview where we get to talk to you about kindness. Yeah, so I know you've probably seen thousands of acts of kindness over the last couple of months and hear about it with when you have your weekly calls with your chiefs. But I'm curious if you can share a few that really stand out. Sure. When I think of kindness, I think of empathy. And I think we have so many examples of chiefs leading with empathy right now and so many stories that they've been able to share with me and that we've tried to share more broadly about what's happening in their communities. I think, again, Baltimore and something that Sonia Santelice said to me that she also shared in the op-ed that she just wrote which is that mothers across her district are waiting in one-hour lines to get a package of diapers right now. There is no precedent for this, or if there is, we have to go back to, you know, 1933 right. to think about what's happening to families right now. That certainly should inspire all of us. It certainly has inspired Superintendent Santelices to get involved, not just in the academic side of, of supporting students and families right now, but in their health and well-being, in the services that other agencies across Baltimore and across Maryland are providing to families. I think that's just so important. And it does begin with the individual stories of individual people in our communities. Another one that I think of, which was really inspiring to us organizationally at the very beginning of the pandemic, was a story of three high school students in Phoenix who shortly after schools closed were huddled under a blanket in the rain next to their school so that they could get a Wi-Fi signal and continue to learn. And that was captured in a photograph that, uh, as they say, spoke a, a thousand words. It was an instant reminder to us 
that students are actually desperate to learn. They were not happy to have their schools closed. And it is on us to serve them well during this time. And kindness is about supporting their academic aspirations. So those are just two examples that jump out to me immediately. And the other thing I would say is leaders should be leading with real love and vulnerability during this time. It is actually helpful to families to know that as a leader, you yourself are vulnerable. And on Twitter the other day, after the awful, awful incident of Ahmed Arbery being murdered, which I'm sure all of you saw, Alicia Johnson was on Twitter saying, I'm afraid for my African-American son right now. And I'm sure that was power. I'm sure that was powerful for families in Indianapolis to hear because I'm sure so many of them were experiencing that same kind of fear. And to know that your leader is a little bit like you Mm -hmm. and understands what you're going through, I think it exemplifies kindness. She's an incredible leader. So let's talk about kindness uh, and you. Every episode on Grow Kinder, we share what we're doing to stay kind this week. So, Mike, what are you doing to stay kind? Well, I'm uh, first and foremost trying to be a good dad. (laughs) I have three daughters. They're 19, 16, and 12. I was pretty heartbroken as my daughter was to be yanked out of her first year of college. It was just such a bummer for her and her friends, and she was having a great year. And so, I mean, part of my kindness is focused on attending to their needs. And I find that one of the things they need right now is to get out of the house and get out into nature and be in a place where they can be mindful. And also, truthfully, in a safe way to see the faces of some of their friends. I think I'm just more cognizant every day of what we're losing by not having social connection right now. We have, with masks on and from a very good distance, not six feet, but more like 20 feet, allowed them to just see the faces of their friends a few times. And that's been healing. I did the same thing on Mother's Day. I drove about two hours to wish my mom a happy Mother's Day. I think she appreciated it, but it was very good for me as well. To me, more and more in the middle of this pandemic, kindness is about doing what we can in a safe way to stay connected to each other, to feel connected to each other. Yeah. Thanks for being a good dad, Mike. Yeah, that's great. Uh, well, always good to hear. I try. Yeah. Hey, Colleen, what about you? Well, you know, one thing that's really impacted me over the last couple of months, so I live in right down in downtown Seattle in a small condo, so we don't have big open areas to be outside, but I try to get out and walk a couple of times a day. And next door to our condo building is a organization who serves primarily homeless men and they help them find jobs. It's a safe place to be during the day. But I've noticed over the last couple of months that the number of people coming there has just been astronomical. And they've started doing meals, so two meals a day. And each day during the pandemic, I think the lines get a little bit longer every day. And what I notice is kind of the loneliness because they're usually coming by themselves. They all have to you know, stand six feet apart and then kind of spread out through the neighborhood to be able to eat. So as I've gone out to walk, usually in the afternoon, what I always try to do is, even though we all have our masks on and a lot of times kind of looking down at the ground, I've tried to make an intentional effort to say hello 
to acknowledge that they're a person, that they are worthy of having somebody stop and talk to them. That's what I've been trying to do the past couple of weeks and will continue to do going forward. That's great. Yeah, never pass up a chance. Right. How about you, Jordan? Oh, I I thought I was going to get away without being asked. (laughs) Let's see. You know, there's a lot of little things that happen through the course of the day, but you want me to tell you one. Oh, let's see. I may have gone to pick up donuts on Mother's Day. We actually have been pretty strict with our stay at home, and that even made it so that we didn't do takeout. We were pretty careful. But this time we broke the rules and went to just a delightful, I picked up some very special donuts that uh, my wife has been very interested in. And now we finally got to celebrate doing Zoom with the family, my wife's mom. And that was just good time had by all. Our kindness means sharing and celebrating with others. So we had a good chance to do that. Thanks for asking. Well, Mike, it's just been a pleasure to have you on our podcast. We really appreciate you. Um, We really appreciate your organization and the voice that the strong voice that you are giving to all of the things that are so critical for our children and youth to be able to continue to learn both academically and socially and emotionally. And I just really applaud you and respect the work that you're doing and appreciate that underneath all of your recommendations and all of your kind of real-time experiences and data that you're sharing, I just get this sense of this strong commitment also to equity, to making sure that students and communities that are often left behind or can be under-resourced, that your chiefs are really championing and showing us that it doesn't have to be that way. And I think of like in San Antonio, where every family now has access to the internet and has devices. If they can do it, you know, everybody can do it. So I just, I really appreciate, again, thank you for your work. I think all of us are learning a great deal during this time and have for some time from Chiefs for Change. Well, thank you very much. And likewise, so appreciative of all the work you're doing. And everyone can see this report, the return. It's at chiefsforchange.org. Hopefully they'll be as inspired as I am by the leadership across our membership. It's, it really is fun for me to wake up every day figuring out how we can best support them. Great. And if people want to learn more about you, is there a way for them to also be able to follow you? Yes, I'm on Twitter at M-C-M-A-G-E-E-J-R, M-C McGee Jr., So you can follow me there. I've been doing weekly updates of all the conversations that we're having across our membership in an effort to be helpful. So you can follow me there. Okay, great. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure. You bet. Take care now. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.